This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by a brilliant physician and entrepreneur. We're joined by Dr. Michael Weinstein. He's a gastroenterologist by background, but now is the CEO and president of Capital Digestive Care. And he'll tell us about that, about sort of what the world looks like for Trends Day for private equity funded healthcare and a lot more. Dr. Weinstein, can you take a moment and tell us about yourself and about Capital Digestive Care? Uh, yeah, Scott, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm a, a longtime listener of your podcast, um, and really it's, uh, it's great to be on. Um, my background is, uh, you know, I went to uh, undergrad. I'm, I have an engineering degree from Northwestern and then went on to medical school there um, and became interested in GI in medical school partly because of all the development of endoscopic equipment back in the 70s. So it kind of tied into my engineering degree. And I came to Washington, D.C. in 1980 for residency, mostly for better weather. Um, sorry that you uh, have to suffer through those Chicago winters. Uh, but uh, Washington was a good spot for me. It was good for my uh, family. Um, and I was lucky enough to not only do my residency here, but land a fellowship. And then after fellowship, um, was in the right place when the two busiest gastroenterologists in the city were looking for a partner. And with a lot of help from them and other mentors, um, they introduced me to, and, and that's what we developed an interest in sort of the business side of medicine and, and developed a business philosophy uh, for GI practice that you know, centers around caring, caring for patients, caring for partners, caring for staff and uh, sharing business knowledge, because that's how I sort of came to understand the business of medicine was through these mentors that I uh, had uh, the lucky enough to, to meet with. Um, and I sort of see healthcare, go ahead. When you look at today, the practice of GI, it's one of the last bastions where in the specialty, there's a lot of independence and they still seem to do quite well, uh, but obviously a lot of physicians are also affiliated with um, mega practices that have grown, they're single specialty and multi-specialty, and, and many physicians are also affiliated with hospitals and health systems as employed physicians and so forth. When you look at the world of GI today, what are the three or four big trends that you follow in the GI world today? Well, certainly life has changed a lot, and, and let me see if I can limit it three. So, Certainly, number one, as you mentioned, is all the consolidation uh, that is happening not only in gastroenterology, but throughout the entire healthcare industry. Uh, consolidation of hospitals, uh, suppliers, vendors, pharma companies, and now the, the actual providers are consolidating. Many of them are consolidating in employed situations at academic uh, institutions or hospital-based systems. And I'm watching closely to see what happens with all of the private equity investment in healthcare, not just in gastroenterology, but other specialties as well, as, you, as I'm sure the listeners are familiar with uh, dermatology and orthopedics and, and you name it. And I am not sure personally whether or not all that PE investment in healthcare is good because you know the general PE investment is a buy to sell involvement, and healthcare is such a long term game. Uh, you know, taking care of patients over their entire lives, uh, very long term diseases, uh, 
physicians who have an entire long-term career, staff that is taking care of families and they need stability over a very long period of time. And I'm not sure that the goals of typical private equity investment in healthcare is the same as the goals of the people who are taking care of patients. Um, so I, I'm watching to see what the success is uh, for that. Um, will it will it meet the, my goal of quadruple aim? Is it good for patients? Is it good for the community? Is it controlled cost? Are the providers all are the providers all happy? Um, and, and, and let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question because so much of our audience at at, at Becker's Healthcare is hospital and health system leaders. Yeah. What does it mean for a hospital and health system leader? as private equity starts to buy into all these different types of ancillaries or buys up practices, and you've got another wave of this going on with orthopedics and gastroenterology, what, what does that mean for health systems? Is it irrelevant to health systems? Does it impact them? Is it a threat to them? It, it just depend on their own situation. What, what's your sense of what does it mean to all this private equity investment? There's so much of it in gastro. There's more and more in orthopedics. What does it mean for the hospital and health systems? I, I think the hospitals are sort of sensing the same thing. They're they're seeing all their providers disappear, right? They're they're becoming part of private equity groups. You have Privia on the primary care side, um, and hospitals are feeling like they need to control their supply of patients. Where are the patients coming from? And in certain communities where there are competitive healthcare systems, there's a nervousness about not having enough provider base. You know, in other more rural communities where there may only be one single hospital health system, I think there's there's a little less anxiety. Um, I th it's a different mentality than where it was when I started into practice where, all, where physicians were predominantly independent and uh, hospitals basically just provided uh, hospital-based service. But with the development of ancillary services and the, the movement of inpatient care to outpatient care and the fragmentation of the ancillary services, I think there is a role for private equity investment in ancillary services because there's a lot of fragmentation and a lot of, a lot of poor business uh, in, in supplying those services. M my concern is, are the, are the providers themselves uh, you know, going to uh, evolve into just being machinery? Uh, are they just going to be another ancillary service for the hospitals? Or uh, can private equity focus on where private equity tends to do very well, which is in consolidating um, similar businesses to produce business efficiency in the, in the production of that ancillary service? I just personally, maybe as a physician, I don't see physicians being part of that process. And, and talk about a, um, the, um, we'll talk about for a moment. Tell us what you're seeing with COVID-19 right now, and then we'll come back to a couple more business subjects in a second. What are you seeing? Well, We're talking August 2021. What are you seeing currently with COVID? Yeah, very, uh, very much have to date that question, right? Because uh, good question. The COVID, what's happening with COVID is a week to week question. Um, very regional. <laughs> it depends on where you live. Uh, what are you seeing in your community? I mean, uh, we're lucky in the Washington, D.C. area. We have a you know very high vaccination rate. More than 80 percent of people who are eligible for vaccination have been vaccinated and even a higher percentage in older patients. So. 
Uh, and yet, over the last few weeks, uh, we are seeing breakthrough infections. We're seeing uh, staff, uh, you know, cabin fever. So people are going out. People are getting second, you know, are getting infected. They're not getting hospitalized. They're, but that means they're quarantined. They're not working. Very disruptive to the community as far as being able to work. So it is it is really difficult to make predictions for more than the next week. I think right now we're going backwards a little bit. We have more masking. Uh, we're taking more precautions in the office. We are going to mandate vaccination, I think, amongst all of our staff and providers. We're going to have to mandate it uh, to keep everybody as safe as we can keep. I am uh, probably will answer this question differently in two weeks. A hundred percent. You had mentioned sort of this, there's this looming issue of people buying up practice, buying up physicians, affiliating and so forth. But, but really we look at that against a bigger backdrop of just looming shortages of specialists and primary care physicians. What is your sense of where we're going right now? Access can be very difficult in many communities you and I both know if we're going to access the right specialists at the right time, we often need to know somebody. It's an unfortunate reality of the ecosystem we're in. But how does that, how do we deal with this fact that we've got this, it seems like a tremendous looming shortage of specialists, not to mention primary care. But let's talk about specialists because everybody talks about primary care shortages. What, what do you see on the specialist side? Yeah, there's certainly been a change. Uh, akin to your other question, you know, I think COVID has been a big factor in this shortage. I think the private equity investment in medical practices is part of the shortage. Um, gastroenterology as a, as a specialty has been on the older side. Most physicians, the average age of gastroenterologists in the United States is closer to 60 than it was to 55. It, it's pretty old. And you take into account this uh, this flux of money into practices, allowing some physicians maybe to retire a little earlier. Um, and then you add COVID into that, which has scared off a lot of particularly older physicians from patient contact. So you have this uh, big shortage of specialists in GI and where are the new physicians gonna come from? You know, gastroenterology fellowships are kind of fixed. The, the, it can't grow to meet the demand. Um, and how are you going to attract associates? Uh, how are hospitals going to find uh, associates to fill their positions? It's uh, If you're a gastroenterologist coming out of fellowship, uh, you're in a good spot. You are sitting in the catbird seat. You have lots of options, and certainly um, the salary and benefits that are being offered are significantly greater than what they were being offered just two or three years ago. But, but how do we deal? You mentioned this issue, and I think you hit it exactly right. Yep. You, you mentioned this issue of fixed numbers of sort of fellowships, residencies, med school spots. I mean, we see brilliant people having a very hard time getting into medical school. And, and it seems insane to me at a time when we are in so in need of more doctors and, and more specialists and not to mention primary care physicians. How do we deal with that fact? I mean, as you have an aging population, 330 million people and growing, a not as nearly quickly a growing group of gastroenterologists for one specialty, but lots of specialties. Is yeah. there any, is there any hope? And in the old days, we were fortunate to have lots of immigrants coming from other countries that were magnificent physicians that filled a lot of these gaps. How are we going to deal with this going forward? This, this 
what seems like a really significant gap in 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 specialists throughout the country. No, you you bring up a good point. I think of big groups are handling this in a in a way that allows the more specialized gastroenterologists to do the things that require the higher level of training and more technical skills, and they're utilizing advanced practice providers. They're utilizing technology to provide some support for patients for non-technical services. So uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants and technology to, to replace some of the need for the actual gastroenterologist. You know, it takes, it takes 13 years to train a gastroenterologist from high school, uh, medical school, uh, you know, graduate education, medical school, a fellowship, residency. It's 13 years to, turn a, to train a gastroenterologist. It only takes three or four years to train an APP. Well, isn't isn't that insane, though, that it takes 13 years? I mean, when you look at the country of India, for example, and they've got bigger needs, got a billion three people, it it takes a lot less than that. Like, they start almost their medical school out of high school, and they're done earlier. I mean, don't we need to make it a little bit easier to become a doctor in this country if we're going to meet the needs that we have? Well, you are bucking up against a 150-year tradition. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that. Um, I don't – I think it – it, uh, I think it's more likely that we're not going to train physicians to, to come out faster. I think we're going to look at alternative providers who can be uh, more focused on certain types of care uh, using nurse practitioners who are gastroenterology trained nurse practitioners. So maybe it takes three years or four years uh, to train people who are very competent, particularly if they have the back drop of a more trained uh, gastroenterologist. So uh, I can, as a gastroenterologist, I can probably oversee three or four nurse practitioners who are working and multiply my uh, my work through the use of the APPs. I think you the get, other thing that's going to happen... You get, but, you, but, that's, no, but your point's very well taken. In some specialties, you can work with advanced practitioners to do colonoscopies and still get a, on a screening done. Yeah. Is there limits to that leverage if you look at specialties like spine, neurosurgery, the procedural part of those things, or the deeper? Where are there limits to that? Where is that? Because your point is very well taken. Look, we could train enough advanced practitioners like we've done for nurse anesthetists to really leverage right. gastroenterologists like we have anesthesiologists. Are there other places where that's less likely to be able to be done? Yeah, I think... Uh, the, the only way it's going to be less likely in other specialties is if we find out that a lot of the services that have been provided historically uh, can be replaced with non-interventional services. Maybe we don't need surgeons for everything. Uh, will there be better medications? Uh, will we fine-tune that? Will we change the healthcare delivery system to incentivize long-term outcomes and value-based uh uh, care as opposed to more care, which is was the uh, incentive in a fee for service uh, system. So we're going to migrate from fee for service to value based. That may decrease the need for uh, physicians. We're going to develop alternative treatments that won't require uh, physicians and can be administered by APPs. And in gastroenterology, Scott, 
We're seeing routine screening colonoscopy, which has been the boon of gastroenterology practice for the last 30 years, uh, may be supplanted by non-interventional means of screening for colon cancer. So uh, will there be molecular diagnostics and liquid biopsies that replace routine screening colonoscopy, allowing the available realm of gastroenterologists to focus on the more, more needed interventional care, and we will give up all of the routine screening. So maybe the supply will meet the demand uh, as we go forward. Fascinating. Um, no, absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And, 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 and take a moment and tell us, what are you most focused on and excited about this year? Um, you, uh, you're, you're uh, funny. So this is what I asked you about, and it's uh, different. I think this year, I am. This year is year. I think I'm waiting to see some of these the technologies and the application of technology, maybe enhanced by private equity investment in healthcare, uh, using artificial intelligence uh, technology and in the realm of patient engagement, uh, those, all of those tools, as well as data analytics and the ability to merge up data, I think this is gonna be a great year for uh, uh, applying all of that technology. And again, I'm biased. I was an engineer before I went to med school. So I love technology. Um, and I think there are a lot of ways to utilize technology to improve healthcare. And, and those are just going to explode in the next one or two years. I really think that's what's going to happen. Uh, and we won't need people. Uh, we, we will get people working at the top of their training, doing what they do best uh, in taking care of patients. And we will utilize technology to maybe around the edges to make it a little bit easier to do that. Thank you very much. Dr. Weinstein, just a magnificent guest. What a magnificent career at the intersection of the highest level of gastroenterology to go with business. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thank you, Scott. I really enjoyed it.